Hey, Keystoners. Welcome back to Keystone State of Mind. It's me, Steph, your tour guide to the dark side of Pennsylvania. I am so glad to finally be back in the studio. I had to take an unscheduled break due to some unforeseen circumstances. And I'll tell you all about that in just a minute. But first, shout outs. Huge thank you to our newest roadie and our very first international patron, Magne from Sweden. Thanks for joining the roadies, Magne, and I hope you're loving all your extra content. KSOM got a five-star rating and positive review on Apple Podcasts from Schmo720. Schmo said that they don't really love Keystone Light, and that's okay. Totally fair. As long as you like KSOM, that's all that matters. So thank you so much, Schmo, for your five-star rating and positive review. I also heard from a few Keystoners who reached out to give me some episode suggestions. So huge thank you to John, Nancy, and Christopher. Thanks for your input, guys. I always love hearing from the Keystoners. That's all for shout outs. Now a couple of quick announcements. There are still KSOM koozies available at the Etsy store. They were made by yours truly, so they're kind of special. I think there are 10 left and the link to the Etsy store is in the show notes or you can just go to Etsy.com and search Keystone State of Mind. And we are still doing the 20K giveaway. When KSOM reaches 20,000 total downloads, I will randomly pick two people that entered the contest to win their choice of merchandise on the KSOM merch store. If you're curious what is in the merch store, just go to ksomthepod.com, click on the merchandise tab, and that'll take you right to the merch store and you can see what's there. All you have to do to enter the contest is make a post on any social media about Keystone State of Mind. Share a link to your favorite episode or just say something nice about the show. Take a screenshot of it and email it to me at keystonestateofmindthepod at gmail.com with the subject line 20K giveaway. So far, I only had one entry into the contest, but that's okay. I appreciate that one entry very much. And there is still time. We are very, very close to 20,000 downloads. But since there's been such a long time since my last episode dropped and I haven't had a whole lot of time to promote the contest, I might push it out just a little bit longer. But either way, still, two people are going to win unless nobody else enters and then just one person is going to win. So, you know, whatever. If you feel like it. Thanks. So that's all for announcements, but I just want to quickly tell you why I have not been able to put out a new episode. On July 2nd, my property was hit by a horrendous flash flood. It was terrifying and really destructive. Thankfully, my home was spared, but my outbuildings and my outside animals were not so lucky. My garage had three feet of water in it. 
My chicken pasture was destroyed. The fence was destroyed. My vegetable garden was washed away. I lost seven chickens in the flood and then five more in the subsequent days that it took me to get their fence put back up. So in total, I lost 12 chickens. I lost a duck. We really didn't lose a whole lot of like expensive items, but like the refrigerator out of the garage was washed away. Our dumpster, our big commercial dumpster full of trash was carried away. And when it happened, I was home alone. So I was a mess, like terrified. It took me like 20 minutes to even get a hold of anybody to come and help me. And then the road was washed out on either side of my house. So it was really hard for anybody to get here to help. But we were able to save the pigs. Well, I say we were able to, but my my guy friend who's much stronger than me was able to save the pigs. So that was awesome. But it was a mess. It took days to clean up and put everything back together and retrieve some of the stuff we lost. Like, thankfully, everything kind of piled up like a quarter mile down the creek. So we were able to go get our dumpster back at least. But we lost like hundreds of dollars worth of animal feed and it, it was just a disaster. And and then the whole town was kind of wrecked. So it was hard to even get anywhere to go buy anything. So for a week, I, I was just busy cleaning up the mess. And it's been consistently raining ever since. So I've just been on edge. The flood really affected me more than I expected it would. Like it was kind of traumatizing. And I've just been kind of too anxious to do anything other than just watch the creek and make sure it's not rising too fast. So I had to just give myself a little break to kind of regroup from all of it and get my property back in order, which thankfully we were able to do that and got new fencing and fixed everything that was damaged and replaced what we could. So I'm definitely feeling a lot better. But then uh, a week or so later, so just a couple of days ago, we had a terrible windstorm and the ground is so saturated that trees fell down all over the place, including one on my house. A tree fell on my roof. It didn't do a whole lot of damage except for to the porch roof. So that's good. Once again, my house was spared. But that was just another fucking mess I had to clean up. And like, you know, it was on the power lines and I had to call the power company and blah, blah, blah. But that whole shit show is now cleaned up as well. So that's awesome. And one kind of really cool thing came of all of this. Uh, I posted a couple of videos of the flood and of my neighbor saving the pigs on TikTok. And it went viral. It got over a million views. And when I posted that video, I had like a dozen followers. And now I have almost 6,000. So that was actually kind of fun. And I originally created a TikTok account to try to promote the podcast. So now I have a whole bunch of people that I could possibly reach when I get around to making a video about the podcast. I have not done that yet. 
I do have quite a few videos on there, though, of like my animals and, of course, the flood and, you know, weird shit. So if you want to follow me on TikTok, I am at KSOM host. So K-S-O-M-H-O-S-T. And if you go there, you can see the videos of the flood and of me freaking out and crying like a lunatic. But that is, in a nutshell, the explanation why I've been away for so long. Not throwing myself a pity party. I just wanted to tell you guys, because it's kind of like the biggest thing that's gone on in my life in quite a while. And you guys are my friends, so I just wanted to tell you. Oh, and the cows are fine. They weren't really affected by it because their pasture is a little ways down the road. It's not right here on my property anymore. So they're totally fine, which also was a huge blessing. Okay, enough of all that. Let's get into a Keystone state of mind. As always, I'll be enjoying an ice cold can of Keystone Light while I tell you today's story. In the early morning hours of July 13th, 2007, 43-year-old Todd Ewalt awoke to police swarming his suburban Harrisburg home. Todd had been sleeping for hours. He had no idea what was going on. But he knew that he had to comply with the Pennsylvania State Police officers that had guns drawn and flashlights pointed at him. Todd raised his hands above his head. And even though he was nude, got out of bed as they ordered him to. The officers allowed Todd to put on a pair of sweatpants and then handcuffed him and led him downstairs. Todd was groggy and confused, but he was thinking this had to be some kind of mistake. Did these officers raid the wrong house? Was this a drug bust gone wrong? Todd would soon find out that this was no mistake. His home was a crime scene. His wife, 42-year-old Darlene Ewalt, had been murdered on the back patio of their home. Police would zero in on Todd as a suspect very quickly. After all, Todd and his son Nick were the only other two people in the home. It had to be one of them, right? But the police were wrong. The murder of Darlene was just the beginning of a weeks-long crime spree perpetrated by the highway killer, Adam Leroy Lane. Todd and Darlene Ewalt had been married for 22 years. They had two older children, Nick and Nicole. Nick was in college at Northwest Missouri University, and Nicole lived on her own. Todd was a carpenter and drywall worker, and Darlene was a homemaker, but she also had a side business making ultra lightweight custom saddles for thoroughbred horse racing, which is pretty cool. They were a really tight knit family. Darlene was described as fun and outgoing and very social. She was a great cook and she loved to travel. On the evening before her murder, 
Tad and Darlene had gone out to dinner with another couple, friends of theirs named Chet and Patty Gerhardt. While they were at dinner, Chet and Patty invited Darlene and Todd to go on a Caribbean cruise with them in October. Todd immediately said he couldn't go because he was a football coach in that football season. He was not about to miss practice or games or anything. But Darlene's like, hell yeah, I'll go. So they talked about that all through dinner. But when they got home, Darlene was still like super excited about planning this trip. So she called and talked to Chet on the phone for quite a while. At about 10 o'clock, Darlene was sitting on the back patio on the phone with Chet. And Todd came down and said that he was going to go to bed. She said, okay, I'll be up in a minute. And Todd's like, yeah, okay, (laughs) sure you will. Darlene was a night owl and she was very chatty. She loved to talk on the phone. And Todd knew that she was not coming up anytime soon. So he went to bed and he fell right asleep. It was a Thursday night and he'd worked all day. He had to work in the morning and he was tired. At 2 a.m., Darlene was still on the phone with Chet. They'd been talking for hours about this trip. And all of a sudden, Chet heard Darlene say, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And then the call went silent, but didn't disconnect. Chet hung up and tried to call back, but it was busy. He couldn't get through. And he was so concerned that he woke up his wife, Patty, and the two of them drove the couple of miles over to Darlene's house. On the way, they called 911. And when Chet and Patty got there, they found Darlene dead, slumped over in the patio chair, and her throat had been slit. Her eyes were still open. Within minutes, the police arrived and assessed the scene. That's when they swarmed the house and woke up Todd and his son Nick and handcuffed them to begin questioning. I can totally understand why the police felt the need to restrain these two guys. Todd was a pretty big man, but Nick was giant. He was a defensive tackle on his college football team, and he was 270 pounds. It didn't take long for Todd to realize that something was really wrong, even though the police were not forthcoming with any information. He didn't know where Darlene was, and her keys and her purse were on the counter. He kept asking the police, where is my wife? Where is Darlene? But they wouldn't tell him for over an hour. They separated Nick and Todd and questioned them separately to try to figure out what happened. But of course, neither of them knew. Finally, one of the state troopers just looked at Todd and said, your wife's dead. That's how they told him. They told Nick something along the same lines and Nick freaked out. He was handcuffed, so he couldn't punch anything like he wanted to. Instead, he headbutted the refrigerator numerous times to the point where it was dented. Todd just collapsed. He was so upset and confused. He did not understand what was going on, and the police obviously were suspecting him. Nick was allowed to call and tell his sister, who rushed right over to find her parents' house surrounded by police and crime scene tape. Within hours, Darlene's parents were called. They lived in Phoenix. 
So they jumped on the first flight to Harrisburg. The whole next day, Todd and Nick were in interrogation rooms being questioned. All the investigators and the district attorney believed that Todd did this. They were tearing apart the Ewalt house looking for bloody clothes or the murder weapon. Police believed this was a hooked, serrated hunting knife, so they were searching everywhere for it. But they were not going to find it in the Ewalt home. There were no bloody clothes to find. Police were not deterred, though, because they knew Darlene had been attacked from behind and her throat slit very quickly. There was a lot of blood, but it didn't like spray or splatter. So it was very possible that the killer didn't get any blood on himself at all. Police did find some illegal things in the home, in Nick's room, marijuana and steroids. The interrogators used this information as leverage to try to get Nick to flip on his dad. But Nick didn't budge. During Todd's interrogation, the investigators painted a picture of an unhappy marriage and financial troubles. They brought up the fact that Darlene was talking on the phone to another man for over four hours at the time of her murder, which I have to admit does seem kind of strange. If I was a cop, I'd be like, hmm, what the fuck's actually going on here? Actually, even as a, you know, podcaster researcher, I was kind of like, what could you possibly be talking about for four hours? Like, I have no reason to think that there was anything untoward going on between Darlene and Chet Gerhardt. But like, it's a Thursday night. Aren't you guys tired? Like, Go to bed. It's two in the morning. Whatever. Not really up to me to decide who gets to talk on the phone to who for how long. But the police were like, there's something fucking weird going on with this. But Todd continued to insist that there was nothing wrong in the marriage. Chet and Patty were friends of theirs. Todd had no jealousy or animosity towards him at all or towards Darlene. Then they started throwing around these financial problems the family was having, which, of course, they weren't in financial trouble. But cops, they'll use these techniques to try to get somebody to confess. So I guess Todd was like a self-employed contractor. And they were trying to say that he didn't have very much work and, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of money in the bank. And Todd was getting pissed. He's like, we're fine. Like, we're not rich, but we're not hurting. And finally, Todd just pulled out his wallet and it had over $1,200 in it. And he says, do any of you guys have this much money on you? I bet you don't. We're fine financially. Meanwhile, Todd had been awake since, you know, just after two in the morning. He hasn't been allowed to sleep. He's still in his grubby sweatpants and slippers. So he's like getting fucking annoyed, but he's trying to be cooperative. He wants to find out what happened to his wife, but they're obviously barking up the wrong tree. And Darlene's parents knew that, too. They did not suspect Todd for one second. So after Todd had been in the interrogation room for all of these hours, Darlene's parents hired an attorney. The attorney called and told the police to stop all questioning, but they didn't. They continued interrogating Todd until the lawyer actually showed up at the police department. 
When Tad and Nick were finally able to leave the police station, they couldn't go home because the house was still a crime scene. The forensic people were still there doing their investigation, so they had to go stay in a hotel. Meanwhile, the district attorney talked to the press and he told them that the community should not be worried. This was not a random attack. And he would find out that he was so fucking wrong. This absolutely was a completely random attack. And there would be another one very soon. On July 17th, 2007, so just four days after Darlene's murder, another woman was attacked. Patricia Brooks was sleeping on the couch of her York County, Pennsylvania home. Her mother and daughter were sleeping upstairs. She awoke to something cold and sharp on her neck. She looked up at her attacker and he was dressed all in black with a black mask. He was a husky guy, not terribly tall, but big. Just as she tried to stand up, the intruder sliced her throat. He then left through the unlocked back door that he entered from. Patricia Brooks did survive her attack. She was able to call out for help to her mother and daughter who were upstairs and 911 was called and she survived. Patricia Brooks has not spoken out a whole lot, so there, I don't really know much about her. There's not a lot of information about her in the public space. What I just told you is pretty much all I know. Some of the police officers that were investigating Darlene's murder did think that there might be a connection between these two cases. It was two women attacked with their throat slit in their home about 20 miles apart. So these investigators brought their theory, their, you know, this possibility to the district attorney and the DA said, no, 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 no. This was totally different entirely. Todd Ewalt's our guy. Stay on that angle. So they did. Todd was given a polygraph and the police told him that he failed it. He didn't know if they were lying and still to this day doesn't know if he passed or failed the polygraph. They also continued putting pressure on Nick. Investigators even reached out to his teachers and his coach at school. Nick was never charged for having those drugs in the home, but police must have told the school administrators because the next year, Nick's football scholarship was revoked. I totally understand why the police zeroed in on Todd Ewald. I get it. It makes sense. He's the only guy in the house with any motive, or at least what they perceived as motive. But once that second attack happened four days later, I think they should have backed off. Like, Okay, you know, maybe there's no connection, but we're talking, this is this is Harrisburg, right? But not in the city proper. The Ewalds lived in West Hanover Township. There's like 10,000 people there. It's not a big city. Very, very low crime rate. And I don't know where in York County Patricia Brooks lived, but York is a pretty 
rural area outside of the city itself. So I can't imagine that there's just random ass stabbings going on inside people's homes at the same time of night, the same victimology. To his credit, the district attorney of Dauphin County, which is where Harrisburg is and where Darlene's case was held, he would later come out and apologize publicly and to Todd Ewalt and take all the blame. He did say that, hey, the investigators came to me and and offered up this possibility that these two cases were connected, and I dismissed that. So, you know, he did take responsibility for what he did, but it was too little too late for the Ewalt family. Nick and Todd especially fucking hate the Pennsylvania State Police to this day. And I can't blame them. Todd Ewald remained under surveillance for months. Helicopters would fly over his house. He was constantly harassed by the police. And his son lost his fucking scholarship to college. Like, they would not relent. In September... There was a grand jury hearing scheduled that Todd was going to have to testify at. They were looking to get an indictment. But right before that hearing is when the evidence came through that pointed to the real killer. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But that's why I can sympathize with Todd Ewald and his feelings for the police in, in his area. After the attack on Patricia Brooks, the highway killer moved his crime spree east to Bloomsbury, New Jersey. In the early morning hours of Sunday, July 29th, 2007, he struck again. Adam Leroy Lane had been prowling the streets of Bloomsbury for hours, looking for an unlocked door. And he found one at the home of 37-year-old Monica Macero. Monica was single and she lived alone. She was very social and had lots of friends. She owned her beautiful home in Bloomsbury, her dream home. Monica was a loan officer. She had actually canceled plans that night. She was supposed to go out with friends. But she just felt like staying in having a night to herself. And just after midnight, when she was about to get into bed, Adam Leroy Lane entered her bedroom. She saw him and tried to run, but he grabbed her, forced her down onto the bed where he stabbed her repeatedly. He stabbed her in the chest, in the stomach, in the neck, and between her legs. The highway killer did not stick around to watch her die. He quickly fled the scene, but Monica bled out in her bed. It wasn't until that Monday morning that Monica's friends and coworkers became concerned when she missed an important meeting. They called police to do a welfare check, and that's when her body was discovered. Once again, I don't know a whole lot about Monica Macero. One of my main sources was an episode of 48 Hours called Hunting Humans. And none of Monica's friends or family were interviewed. And I really didn't see much about her in any articles. So I have limited knowledge of Monica and what she was like. 
other than she was fabulous. She lived alone, owned her own home, wasn't married, didn't rely on a man. I love that in women. And had a great job and lots of friends and was had a super great social life. So we can assume she was fucking fabulous. The very next night, the highway killer perpetrated his fourth and final attack. This is so fucking great. You guys are going to love this. The family we're about to talk about are amazing. At about 4 a.m. on July 30th, 2007, the highway killer entered the home of Jeannie and Kevin McDonough in Chelmsford, Massachusetts. He quickly found his way to the room where their 15-year-old daughter, Shay, was sleeping. Shay wasn't sleeping in her own bedroom that night. It was July, it was hot, and the central air was broken. So she slept in the guest bedroom that had a ceiling fan and it was much cooler. This guest bedroom happened to be adjoining, not adjoining, but right next to her parents' bedroom. And this was so fortuitous. Yep, there's my dogs. They want to chime in. Mm -hmm. Sorry about that. They're settled down now. Who knows? Maybe the wind blew in a certain direction that they didn't care for. They're barky. Anyways, so Shay's sleeping in the guest bedroom. She woke up to find Adam Leroy Lane on top of her with a knife to her throat. He was wearing a mask and dressed all in black. He told her, if you make any fucking noise, I will fucking kill you. Shay was athletic and a swimmer and pretty strong for a 15-year-old girl. So she just started kicking. She didn't scream, but she did start kicking. The sound of the headboard of the bed hitting the wall woke her parents up and they came to see what was going on. And here Jeannie and Kevin find this big, disgusting man on top of their daughter. Kevin just jumped on his back instinctively. Kevin's like 160 pounds. Adam Leroy Lane, much bigger than that. Kind of a husky fella. I don't know if I'd say fat, maybe fat. Okay, yeah, fat. We'll go with fat. But Kevin was a wrestler in high school, and he remembered a chokehold move that worked. At the same time, he's yelling to Shay, go call 911 and get my gun. Kevin McDonough didn't have a gun, but his quick thinking told him that if he threatened a gun, maybe this guy would be a little bit more intimidated. Also, at the same time, Jeannie McDonough, the mom, is grabbing for the knife. She can't get a hold of the handle of the knife, so she's just grabbing at the blade and was cut terribly. And they're both screaming at this guy. And the dad, Kevin, he's calling him a fat fuck, <laughs> which I think is funny. He's like, what are you doing, you fat fuck? What do you think you're doing, you fat fuck? And the guy's like, I just wanted money. And Jeannie McDonough says, who are you? He says, I'm no one. Just let me go. And they're like, okay, probably. Jeannie was able to get that knife out of his hands and Shay called 911 while Kevin subdued the man in a chokehold. I fucking love these people. I love them. 
the police came and arrested Adam Leroy Lane. The family just hugged each other and were just so glad to be safe and alive. But Jeannie had to go to the hospital because she had some serious injuries to her hand from taking that knife. What a badass family. And I absolutely love the fact that Kevin McDonough said to get his gun, even though he didn't have one. Guaranteed that helped him subdue this fucking psychopath. Like, that was so smart. And I'm like, I'm going to remember that, even though I do have guns. But I'm going to still say, get my gun if somebody's attacking me. Whatever. Now, I don't want to take anything away from the other people that were attacked because I absolutely believe that if Todd or Nick Ewalt were awoken during the attack on Darlene, they would have also kicked this man's ass. And once again, the dogs are barking. Apologies. When Adam Leroy Lane was arrested, he was found to be in possession of hunting knives, serrated hooked hunting knives, choking wires, and Chinese throwing stars? Okay, buddy. Whatever. So when they got him back to the station, they had to figure out who the fuck is this guy? He was a 43-year-old truck driver who lived in North Carolina with his wife and three daughters. He was on his second marriage, and it was well known to his family and friends that he hated women, especially his mother. His first wife told police that he actually was abusive to his mother as an adult, like beat her up, fucking scumbag. He was also extremely difficult to work with, like as customers or coworkers. There were certain places that he could not deliver to because the customers there fucking hated him. He was a dick. When police searched his truck, his long-haul, over-the-road trucking truck, they found more knives. And, and also, it was fucking gross. Like, I saw crime scene pictures. Like, dude was a fucking slob. But one thing that they found of interesting note was a DVD in the laptop DVD player called Hunting Humans. It's a really not well-rated movie that came out in 2002 and it was like straight to DVD. I looked it up on Rotten Tomatoes and stuff like I'm definitely not gonna watch it but I don't even think movie people like this movie. Adam Leroy Lane loved it and according to some articles I read it's kind of like a step-by-step instruction guide on how to be a serial killer so that's nice. During his interrogation, Lane told Chelmsford police that he'd been prowling through the town for five hours looking for an unlocked door. He tried three other houses before he came upon the unlocked back door at the McDonough household. The only reason why that door was left unlocked was because Shay's older brother, Ryan, wasn't home yet. And so she left the back door unlocked for him, thinking he was still coming home. But what she didn't know was that he was actually spending the night at a friend's house. Jeannie McDonough, the mom, in the documentary I watched, The 48 Hours, she said that Ryan was 
had so much guilt because of that fact, because he wasn't there to help his family. And because, you know, Shay didn't know that he wasn't coming home, which, of course, none of that is his fault. This is no one's fault but fucking scumbag Adam Leroy Lane. Lane did admit to the murder of Monica Macero. And when he was being questioned by the Bloomsbury police from New Jersey, they asked him if there was a a sexual aspect to this because he stabbed her in the crotch. And he adamantly denied that there was any sexual aspect to it. He said, I love my wife. What? What? He's okay with being a murderer as long as nobody thinks that there's sexuality attached to it. Fucking creep. And that becomes more evident in a little bit. Hang on. Lane was tied by DNA to the murder of Darlene and to the attack on Patricia Brooks. The knives that he had in his filthy ass truck still had their DNA on it. And that is the only reason why Todd Ewalt was not indicted for murder. Like, I believe... That he, he could have been fucking convicted of that murder if it wasn't for them finding the DNA on those knives. And Todd Ewald credits the McDonough family for that. He said if they had not stopped him that night, not only would he have killed more people, but Todd could have gone to prison for the murder of his wife that he did not commit. Police used the evidence in Lane's truck and the interviews with Lane himself to deduce that what he would do is park at a truck stop and then just walk through these neighborhoods looking for someone vulnerable that he could attack. He didn't care who it was, just a woman that he could kill. And he would spend hours just prowling through these neighborhoods looking for someone that he could get to. What a fucking weirdo. And what's really weird is he had no criminal record before this. None. Like he was a dick and everybody knew that, but he had never broken the law or at least never been caught. And these four attacks are the only ones that police can actually tie him to. But God knows what else he did because he's pretty tight lipped. He didn't say a whole lot during the interviews. The McDonough family obviously went to the initial court proceedings. And there's video of this where Jeannie's hands were still bandaged from the cuts she got from taking the knife away from him. Lane stood in a plexiglass bulletproof box during these proceedings. And Jeannie said he looked like a caged animal. He was disgusting. That's how she described him. I agree. The McDonald's didn't only go to the initial court proceedings. They went to all of them, including the ones that were held in New Jersey and in Pennsylvania. The McDonald family became very close with the Ewalt family. Nicole Ewalt, Darlene's daughter, speaks of Jeannie as her second mother, which I think is so amazing. Like these two families really came together in this time of crisis, as well as Faye and Frank Macero, Monica's parents. That is the most wonderful thing that could come out of something so awful. And Adam Leroy Lane will be in prison for life. 
He was sentenced to 20 years in prison for the attack on Shea McDonough in Massachusetts. He was sentenced to 50 years for the murder of Monica Macero in New Jersey. He was sentenced to 15 years for the attack on Patricia Brooks in Pennsylvania. And he was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Darlene Ewell in Pennsylvania. Now, he pled guilty to all of these, but the only way that he would accept a plea bargain is if any charges of sexual assault were taken off the table. He would not admit to any sexuality being part of his murders. I just, I can't comprehend the thought process behind that. Like, you're okay with being a serial killer, as long as nobody thinks that you got a woody from it. He's a lunatic. We can't understand the mindset of lunatics. I have to just accept that. But because of these plea bargains, his life was spared. He did not receive the death penalty in Pennsylvania, which is the only death penalty state involved here. And of course, we know there's been a moratorium on executions in Pennsylvania for decades. So whatever, he just gets to live not on death row. In the State Correctional Facility at Fayette in Pennsylvania. Good riddance, scumbag. So that's the story of the highway killer. One quick note. Jeannie McDonough did write a book called Caught in the Act. I did not have time to read it, but I did link it in the show notes in case you want to. And another thing, super fast, Adam Leroy Lane is classified as a serial killer, but I don't know if I believe that, like, or agree with that classification because FBI analysis says that You have to have killed three people with a cooling off period to be known as a serial killer, which he did not kill three people. However, he did try. So I don't know, I guess. I just think that's a questionable classification and I want to tell you about it. Once again, I apologize for being gone so long and I am so glad to be back. I took a few days off from work to try and regroup a little bit. So hopefully I'll be able to get another episode out really soon. But if you really need your KSOM fix, check me out on Patreon. Patreon.com slash KSOM. The link is in the show notes. And I definitely always put those episodes out. I think there are, yeah, there are 12 bonus episodes on, uh, on KSOM's Patreon. So go check those out. And whatever you do, stay Keystone, my friends.